captains with hair pieces, recreational drug use. Oh yeah. Wacky doodle cuckoo bird. Oh yeah. What the fuck, this isn't Deep Space Nine. Oh yeah. It's time for the rules of acquisition. Hello and welcome to the rules of acquisition. We're taking a slight detour today where we're going to talk about something other than ds9 we're talking about another star trek related thing that you can watch on netflix a little william shatner joint called chaos on the bridge i'm wade bowen with me is james nolan hey guys and hugh crawford hello so chaos on the bridge was it a gene roddenberry uh, attack piece or was it <laughs> i'm sorry something else uh well okay i I think, I mean, I think it was probably trying to be pretty fair to Gene Roddenberry, especially like, like I think in all of like the sort of overarching narration parts by by Shatner and everything, it was trying to seem really sort of reverential to him. But I mean, all told, it was pretty. Sh- it paints a pretty shitty portrait of Gene Roddenberry. I guess we should say what it is. It's a it's a documentary about like um, the early days of the, the like the star how. The next generation started, and the huge sort of issues they had in the writers' room and in the Paramount production lot uh, with dealing with Gene Roddenberry and all of the people that Gene Roddenberry brought onto the show and fi- fired off the show. So, and it um, also addresses a lot of our questions about and problems that we have with Star Trek fundamentally. Yeah, yeah, like how how I think we had a whole I, I I can't remember if it was one we did before we started airing but we talked quite a bit about how did Rick Berman get in part uh, involved in the show? Where did he come from? And I think it paints a pretty clear picture that who Rick Berman was and why he got total control is cuz he was the only man in the room that knew how to like not fuck it up. Right, who did uh, right for Hill Street Blues or Columbo? <laughs> Right. Because apparently there was a guy <laughs> named Mari. I can't remember Mari's last name, but he, he Mari Morris Hurley, I believe, is his name. Yeah, right. yeah. And that yeah. guy, that guy came off like a total fucking. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Don't get me started. I think you guys are a little shittier, down more down on Rotten Bear than I am. I still, I still hold out something that Dave. I'm. I'm. I try to take the side of the Dave Berman. And Rick Berman. Rick Berman, sorry. That's a whole other... Oh, my God. I don't know what Dave Berman thinks of Yeah. Oh, my God. Now I just want to know what Dave Berman thinks about Gene Roddenberry. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Where is Dave Berman now? Okay, anyway, that's such a... Yeah, you know, the hardcore Star Trek nerds are like, oh, Rick Berman changed what Star Trek was about. It's not about the... Okay, okay. So let's talk about the the grand dream. Um, I think this documentary sort of shows... Or it, it it poses a counter narrative to the Rick Berman ruined Star Trek sort of school, and the counter narrative is is that Gene Roddenberry's grand vision was <laughs> the almost cult like delusions of a drunken, washed up has been who got a second chance to shine. Yeah, that's kind of the thesis of this film, which. I'll talk a little bit more about my thoughts about later. <laughs> okay. Well, the, that's yeah. a good. It's a good place to start because he is a contemporary of L. Ron Hubbard. L. Ron Hubbard. Yes. Yeah. The fact that he could have started his own religion if he wanted to, like it was an option to him. 
<laughs> you know. Right. Well, he they bring it up in the film that he talked about it like, man, I missed an opportunity. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. So his second opportunity is is getting another shot at Star Trek in the 80s. Yes, yes. <laughs> he missed the cult boat, so he has to go with the next best thing, which is having another run at a recycled idea that he had, you know, 12 or 15 years earlier. Yeah. So I don't think, in saying that, I don't think it's insincerely held. Like, I think he believed that. I just think that it was like... It was inconsistently held. Sure. They say in the in the documentary, oh, yeah, Star Trek was just wagon train in space. And then he thought, then it his ego blew up and he thought it was this bigger ideal and everything. And the, they kind of say, like, eh, but really, it wasn't this grand idea until he was um, deified by all the Star Trek nerds and then decided it had to be this utopia thing, blah, blah, blah. I think mm-hmm. they made a, a really good case for that line of thinking. I think they did, but I think that line of thinking is a little bit flawed, maybe. But you go ahead. Well, what I think is, is that it's a, like a power fantasy of Roddenberry in the 60s. You know, he does imagine himself as James T. Kirk punching out the bad guy and getting the women. Mm-hmm. And then when he's an older guy, he clearly identifies with the Picard character, but he also... And they don't address this at all, which I found is weird, is that he interjects, you know, the Wesley Crusher character is is him as well, yeah. because his his middle name is actually Wesley. And that's where they got that that yeah. character's namesake from. So he he did interject a, so much of himself in the character. Yeah, I think it was a documentary that, that was made by his son that I think it's called Trek Nation, which I have seen before, which I think deals with Roddenberry's like like the Wesley uh oh shit Jonathan Frakes character and Picard are Riker I can't it's like I couldn't remember William Riker's name so Wesley Riker and Picard are like sort of three stages of Gene Roddenberry the child the adventuresome lecherous young man and then the wizened sort of philosophical thinker Horatio Hornblower yes yeah. Horatio Hornblower <laughs> And they talk about, like, in the film, they're like, oh, Ronberry gave Patrick Stewart a stack of books and said, this is who the captain is. He's Horatio Hornblower. Mm-hmm. But that idea, that's where, uh, what's his name that did Khan in Undiscovered Country? He was the guy that said, no, Horatio Hornblower is what we're going to do with Star Trek. He's the guy that made it all really upped the naval and the admiralty and all that kind of, and the uniforms changed and everything. Oh, yeah. And I say... That Roddenberry noticed that that worked better, and so that's probably where he, you know, he was stealing from that guy's what I think maybe. Yeah, I think that ultimately, and we could talk about this, I think maybe maybe there's sort of two drives in people. One is which is to see the creator of a big show to be like a big thinker who's putting out his full vision, and you want to take that vision in. I think people look at have looked at George Lucas like that before, or George R. R. Martin, or Robert Jordan, or more importantly, J.R.R. Tolkien, look at that as like a man. Rod Sterling. Rod Sterling and and people like that. But really, at the end of the day, art is pretty gritty and full of compromises and sort of changes of whim more than I think audiences like to think. Yeah. You know, I think it's pretty clear and I, I, have a, I think it's pretty clear that George R.R. Martin is disinterested in writing Game of Thrones books anymore. But he has to. So he will. But I, his his interest is clearly out of it. So, and I think that we don't want to think that because we want to see a man sort of 
enraptured by a vision and really like driven to put that out. Where really, I mean, he was just a producer for Paramount, a sometime producer for Paramount who made a show. Yeah, see, that's right. Who is answering fan mail? That's where I start to. It's interesting to me that this documentary was directed by William Shatner, for one thing, because (laughs) yeah, there's a lot going on. When you go back and when you go back and all the other actors in Star Trek, they all like, oh yeah, that's just Bill being Bill. Mm -hmm. I don't think. And then they, the way they talk about Roddenberry, even back in the '60s, like you hear listen to like Nichelle Nichols talk about why she could had to do the show and then the whole thing where he was like no this has to be you and he was very and the whole idic kind of concept and everything like it, a lot of it was with wagon train in space and it was definitely like hey sexy broads in space and you know yeah. Kirk is a woman's man but at the same time I feel like he was also the big name actor he was you know had so many TV and he was the serious mm-hmm. actor even back when the original Star Trek was on I feel like they just kind of like okay we'll do what you want and you're you're like our handsome man I don't have to, I don't have to talk about what it's about with you you're like yeah. our sexy protagonist Blah, blah, blah. But then also, he still had the big ideas about race and all that other stuff. Definitely not to this extent that you get in Next Generation. I'll concede that. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely, he got it bigger up his, in his head that he had to do this grand utopian thing. But the germs of it are still there. Well, and I think that what what's going on here is that he fucked up what makes narratives work which we've talked about before, which is kind of what I, what we've, we've touched upon this before. Uh, utopia, you know, when everybody's getting along, there's no room for conflict. There's no story to be driven by conflict. And I think that's why Deep Space Nine, you know, I made that comment about how the characters in Deep Space Nine are like the kids in the back of the room, in the classroom, you know, don't know where their next meal's going to come from. And the next generation characters are like the kids at the front of the class who are, you know, asking for more homework. They're goody two shoes. It it is because you know of Roddenberry's insistence on you know no conflict between the characters. Yeah. You know, and and the documentary stops basically in season three when everything was working. They throw all the Roddenberry stuff out. Right. Well, except they don't. They just they realize that's. I think uh, Maurice Hurley is the biggest shit in that whole thing because yeah. he's the one that is like coming out this was bullshit. It was, he never respected the ideas to begin with. He's like this contract guy, you know, he did all these cop shows or whatever. He's the, the Hollywood television guy that they brought in to write the show. And he never gave it, he was like, this is fucking stupid, but oh well, I guess we'll see what they do. And they're doing all this plot-based stuff that, I will agree, the ideas don't work at all. But at the same time, without that kind of core philosophy behind it, you don't get the better Star Trek that comes later when not that they throw out necessarily all the Roddenberry ideas they Berman to his credit comes in and says okay they were doing all this convoluted plot shit that was dumb and wasn't working we're gonna make it about characters Mm -hmm. where that's where it makes sense with all this even with the utopian setting if they don't have the political or plot based problems necessarily anymore they're still gonna have humanity to deal with and their own humanity and each other's and that makes a lot more interesting whereas if they didn't have this kind of stumbling around you would have something not quite as interesting you wouldn't have had a bald picard because if you didn't have roddenberry eventually 
going for it, you would have had Pike, the producer yeah. guy. That, yeah, John Pike comes off like the biggest ass. That guy looks like just like that that entire when him and Bill Shatner are talking, I think we got a glimpse of a certain type of ossified old has been Hollywood. Yeah. When those two guys are talking and swapping shit stories on those and I enjoyed watching it. But at the same time, you know, you reflect that both the Shatner less so, but both of these men are just full of shit. Yeah. Right. Are past their day and want to talk about like the time they were, you know, like wheeling and dealing. And so John Pike comes off like a typical, what I think of as a typical Hollywood executive, probably back then before they're a little bit, probably they're more sophisticated today. But this idea of a man who just, I want some cute girls and I want, you know, I want some star, I want some Star Trek and I want some cute girls and I want to get it on. And I'll, I want 20, I want, I want to, I want 26 episodes. Like, and I want, you know, all of this kind of bullshit that probably matters at Paramount Studios. But the 20, 30 years removed, almost 30 years removed, it looks pretty ridiculous now to think that that was what was important and they were focusing on with the show. But, yeah, what I think is, is that I think that both Maurice Hurley was wrong man for his job and probably Roddenberry wasn't a good shepherd of his vision because I think he probably did like, I think he was an old television guy. Yeah. And so if he's saying nobody has conflict or anything like that, and then out, like he's sitting at a desk with like five scripts where it's all like about the damn triclon core. Like, I don't know the warp core. He's like, why are people watching a show about warp core anomalies? You know, like they want to watch shows about people, man's in you know struggle against his own heart or whatever and so he has to he realizes that these scripts are bad (laughs) and he realizes that his own edicts are not allowing them to change that i thought the the only person that didn't shit talk even in the slightest gene roddenberry in this documentary was brandon braga who said that he thought it was exciting and who wrote some of the best episodes of star trek next generation yeah but he said that it was interesting to work within that box because you had to you had to figure it out yourself. Right. Yeah, that's what I thought was interesting. His take, because, yeah, I feel like the best stuff is when you are struggling with those confines. And you do have to bend them a little bit, mm-hmm. which people give shit for Berman later bending it too much. But I feel that's probably unfounded. Well, if they're giving him shit for the movies, I mean, the movies, like, oh. specifically the last, uh, the last one. Oh, the, yeah. The one with Tom Hardy. That. That's some awful. I, True. I don't know. I think you did you defend that once to me, Nemesis. Um, no, that one was that was you're thinking of somebody else because that's pretty. Un- yeah. Okay, good. So we're all Nemesis haters. No. Okay. Uh, yeah. If that was Rick Berman's fault, then fuck Rick Berman because that. I mean, no one can blame that on Roddenberry. So uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that if that was Rick Berman, then fuck him. All right, guys. Real quick, I want to I want to touch upon one of the most exciting things about this documentary before this gets gets away with this mm-hmm. too quick. When you realize who, when the guy says, I come from a showbiz family, who that guy is. It's Mel Torme's son. Yes. <laughs> I about flipped out. What? Yes, when I put that together. I didn't even notice it. One of the season one yeah, writers. Tracy Torme. Yeah. Wow. Tracy Torme. I, Mel, I, Mel Torme's son. Tracy Torme. Uh, it's interesting to me that if you come from a, a showbiz family, you know, like, Bell Tormey's son, and you could do anything in Hollywood that you choose to be a writer on Star Trek The Next Generation. (laughs) 
Well, he didn't have that voice. And could he do anything in Hollywood? <laughs> Who knows? Maybe they're like, okay, we'll throw him on Star yeah. Trek. He's a what? Yeah. Well, I guess I guess that's a testament to what he could like do. I guess, I don't know, but it, it's interesting to me that if you come from like a connected family in show business, you know that that's what you choose. Oh, it definitely helps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was I was saying while while we, while we lost you that. The thing that I find most interesting about the show or about this documentary for our purposes is talking about Deep Space Nine is that it shows at the end sort of the cavalry that arrived was Mark Pillar and Rick Berman taking control of the show and then giving sort of high rider positions to Brandon Braga and Ira Bear. Oh, yeah. And ultimately, and, and I guess Ronald D. Moore. Well, I mean, Ira Bear is like the showrunner for Deep Space Nine. Mm hmm. And Mark Pillar, it was created by Mark Pillar and Rick Berman. So I think and Mark Pillar wrote the, the only good episode we've had so far. So I think that, I think you see, like, these are the guys that made the Star Trek we like. Yeah. You know? Right. And so it was interesting to watch, like, they took this sort of vessel and turned it in, you know, and it is a thing that it was nominated for an Emmy in the in the 90s against NYPD Blue and I mean they didn't win but I mean it was against like bigger shows and and it was a first run syndication show and no one knew where what time it was on right didn't have a national push so I mean that's a big deal that these writers did that and they went on to do interesting things since then so I think in my interest to see where like good quality things come from like I think that was you know sort of interesting I think that we can look back on it the same way that 10 years from now, watching a documentary about the writer's room of Breaking Bad will probably be really interesting. So, I don't know. Will it? Or will it everybody on the writer's room for Breaking Bad said, yeah, it was great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was no conflict. Every, it worked perfect. <laughs> we all got along. He was a great showrunner. He knew exactly what he wanted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's easy to do that when everything goes your way. <laughs> I do think that that's like a pro. Like I noticed something about like a difference between this era of television and the era of television that we live in now. Which I don't know if I've ever said this on this podcast, but we are living in the greatest era of television ever. Sure, where television shows have rose into the level of the art of our, you know, art. Yeah, you know, the art of our generation. So it's interesting to see how a writers' room works today, like how Breaking Bad worked where Vince Gilligan would call in these guys and then they would sort of plot on some sort of yarn board, plot, plot out the season. And then everybody got an assignment. You get to write this chunk of the season, you know, and then they go and then it goes there. from there. It has to be so much different than just the way it seemed is you just pitched a show and they went with it or told you no, and then they would rewrite it or not. And it, it just seems so chaotic when I'm sure Rick Berman was probably saying in meetings, I would really like the season to go this way, but no one's writing us that way. And so that was probably frustrating to him, where now Rick Berman would be the Vince Gilligan of the show, and he would say, right. you know, he would take a writer's credit, and he would force the show to go there right. if he had to write it himself. So I think that that's sort of the, you know, it's sort of interesting because it seems like we're living in this sort of auteur era of television where it's Matthew Weiner's Mad Men and Vince Gilligan's Breaking Bad and da Damien Lindelof's Leftovers. Right. It's interesting to go back to a time period when they were, you know, I get the image of Rick Berman just sitting in a room waiting for a good data story to fall on him. You know, <laughs> we keep complaining that there's there's not been a good Dax episode, which we get a good Dax episode next week, but like we haven't had a good Dax episode 
you know, I get the feeling he's just like, one of these days. Yeah, if Denise Crosby was cast as Dax, she would have quit three episodes ago. <laughs> I thought it was really funny when she was like, can you just cut, make a cut out of my legs? Oh, right. Yeah, that was pretty good. <laughs> because that was, because you do for for whole episodes in the first season. You just see, she's just the pair of legs behind Picard's head. And yeah, no, I, I could see that as being frustrating. <laughs> yeah, if if Terry Farrell, it, you know, it's, it's pretty surprising that she hasn't quit at this point. Here we are at episode six. Okay, another thing, <laughs> another quick thing about your, I'm sorry, uh, another quick thing about your golden age of television, it, it being auteur driven. Mm-hmm. We know how that ended for cinema in the 70s. Yeah. When uh, we know the exact moment that auteur driven cinema ended, <laughs> and, and that was Heaven's Gate. And I stand by that season two of True Detective was was, season two of True Detective (laughs) was the golden age of television's Heaven's Gate. Yeah. And in fact, uh, in support of that theory just came out that HBO has forced on Pizzolatto. He has to take a writer's room. They're making him. If he wants a season three. He has to take a writer's room, right? Because right. he had Heaven's Gate, <laughs> you know, and and, and and it makes me think that maybe television and the golden age of television is a little bit more durable for auteurs. Like he's get he got put in a penalty box. He didn't get kicked yeah. out. You know what Notice I mean? Notice they didn't pull that shit on David Milch. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they just fired him. Right. Well, they gave him two more shows that he fucked up and didn't <laughs> kill some horses. Yeah, he was killing horses. He killed horses. That was a good show, but the horses guy, I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I, and also, I'm sure they're way too scared of David Milch to pull that shit on him. Sorry, the show's not happening. <laughs> I'd be afraid of him. <laughs> well, yeah, he's crazy. And I you know, and I still hold out hope that there's more deadwood Me too. in the future. But yeah, so like I, I think that you're right, it's durable. I also think that it's something about the the nature of, of telecommerce right now, because every channel now needs to have content, all the time content. Overstock.com. <laughs> yeah, overstock. They're going to start having original. I'm yes. serious. That, I wish that was a joke. They're they're no. actually going to have original program. Wow. Oh, really? Yeah. And you're going to start hearing like the Cohen brothers are developing a show for Overstock.com. No, 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 you won't. That's what. That's where we have to pitch a show to because they'll take yeah, the that's, random shit. Cohen brothers get an HBO show, yeah. but that's the, Showtime at least. Right. They get an HBO show. Yeah, I'll give you. I'll give you that. No, Overstock. If you're listening, where we could be a reach. You know. Via email, Overstock people. <laughs> we will pitch the shit out of your country. You, you listening, Overstock? <laughs> so, like, that, I mean, I had to watch the last season of Community on the Yahoo's search page. You know, so people are going into strange places to find television. All right, well, I think we've said enough that needs to be said about chaos on the bridge. Yeah. It's going to be a little bit shorter, and we can just cut this shit out. Uh, we can stop talking about it. All right. But, I mean, that sounded harsh. It's a quick it's only like less than an hour long it felt like it was like 53 minutes yeah yeah, yeah. it looked like william shatner learned flash and <laughs> decided like i have to do some flash animation and then and then he did those interviews and then he knocked it out in the weekend yeah well i'm curious to what happened in the interviews that they cut out you know like he got directing credit on that i feel like the editor probably did most of the heavy lifting yeah they you know they did some talking about William Shatner that he did not want in there. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, he was even, I mean, I thought who turned it, like, I think it was, was it 
Ira Bear. That, yeah, that's yeah. like, what did you think when the show started? Like, I know you were pissed. Like, and I was kind of funny. Yeah, that was just my favorite part. Yeah, that was a highlight. <laughs> Shatner's like, yeah, I had a tinge of when I had the first call him captain. Yeah. It's so funny to me how seriously people take their ranks in the Star Trek verse. <laughs> they do. But, uh, all right. Does anybody have anything else they want to say about that? No. Nope. Three to beam out. All right. Three to beam out. <laughs> That's a good <laughs> Wow. Alright, I think we're done. <laughs> Please follow us on Twitter at Acquisition Pod and on Tumblr at the Rules of Acquisition Podcast.tumblr.com. Send us an email at Rules of Acquisition Podcast at gmail.com. You can turn this off now. It's pretty pathetic that you are still listening. Do you not have friends for a hobby that is not Star Trek podcast related? That is possibly why people are fearful for the future of our society. We believe in you. We know you are better than this. (laughs) 